Hey, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd. I'm a reporter on HousingWire's editorial team, and I'm also the producer of this weekly podcast. Today, I'm bringing you the seventh episode of season two, which features Jonathan Kaur, the president and CEO of Ellie Mae. This week, Jonathan discusses the company being acquired by Tama Bravo, as well as Ellie Mae's recent acquisition of fintech company Capsalon. Additionally, Core details his market outlook for 2020. But before we listen, Clayton will bring you a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire. And before we get started with this episode of the Housing News Podcast, I want to bring you some knowledge and insight from our sponsor, ArchMI. With interest rates at historical lows, refinances are booming. How do you win this business? It's simple. Lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Arch's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program, makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium payment. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash refi. The Housing News Podcast is now a member of the Industry Syndicate. The Industry Syndicate has launched a podcast made for mortgage and real estate professionals by mortgage and real estate professionals. Download the app from Apple or Google and join the community today. Thank you for listening. And here's episode seven of the Housing News Podcast. Hey, good afternoon, folks. This is Clayton Collins, President and CEO at Housing Wire. And for the seventh episode of season two of the Housing News Podcast, we are thrilled to bring another extremely impressive guest, someone who is making moves on the, the technology landscape and helping lead this industry forward in the in the mortgage world. Uh, today, we are thrilled to have Jonathan Core, the President and CEO of Ellie May, join us. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Clayton. It's great to be here. And uh... Thanks for the nice introduction. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just thrilled to have you today. As busy as you are right now, 2019 has been such a big year. So, so thank you for your time. And we're really excited here at Housing Wire. And I know a lot of our listeners and guests are as well to learn more about what you are up to at Ellie May and learn about some of the, the considerations that have gone into the huge decisions that you and your team have, have made this year. Well, it's, it's actually interesting. It's very timely. Um, we, we actually just had our our offsite with uh, a bunch of our, um, you know, uh, leaders and managers. Um, we do that every year as we kind of roll into November, just before the Thanksgiving holiday and, and gear ourselves up for, you know, the, the, the following year. And so we were, we're gearing up for 2020 right now, but, you know, as I sat and I talked to the team, you know, it was basically a year ago, uh, uh, about two weeks ago, 2019, where we really started uh, the process uh, for where we ended up earlier this year with the uh, the take private with uh, with Toma Bravo, and it, it really was you know um, I, I think a, it, it was an interesting dynamic as I, I I thought about the situation and what we thought was coming, um, and I thought the entire industry expected uh, where we were coming. Um, and what 19 turned out to look like, and then you know maybe what we think 20 might look like. But you know, uh, a year ago at, at this time, um, we had we were seeing the same thing everybody else was a uh, 
you know, a, uh, a downtrodden view coming out of uh, the annual um, in, in Washington, um, you know, a, a market that was pretty tight, uh, pretty frozen up because rates had uh, gone up uh, a significant amount over a point. Um, home price appreciation had soared. Inventory was incredibly tight. Um, and I had just come off a, um, a communication um, that to the public market that my expectations is we weren't going to see much of an active market on the residential finance side, probably till we hit spring of, uh, of 20, uh, 2019. Um, you know, it, it just, that's, that was the tone you heard from everybody, the predictions for where volumes were going to be. We all saw the same thing coming. Um, and that had affected our stock price, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the public market reacting to that and the, the outlook, but that was the right outlook to share at the time. Um, the tech market had just dipped down further. And, you know, I had been at a board meeting where, you know, we had been reached out to by a number of um, private equity investors. And, you know, we were having a discussion as a board about, you know, what is the best thing for us to do and consider um, given the situation in the market, given the fact that we're responsible as fiduciaries to our public shareholders, um, that, you know, we've had a vision that we've been marching on and sailing towards of automating everything automatable in the, the mortgage industry, our North Star, if you will. And, you know, very important constituents are part of that. Our customers, our partners, our, our employees, our teammates. Um, and so as we thought about what was going on around us and, you know, some of the, the dynamic, you know, what was the best, best path for LA Med? And so, you know, I went off and I, I chatted with some of these, uh, these private equity firms. Um, I also, to be honest with you, had a fear in the back of my, my, my mind that um, somebody that would not be thinking about keeping the company together and allowing us to keep doing what we've been doing, um, but rather it would come in as a strategic buyer um, and potentially chop the company up. Um, there are big known enterprise software companies out there that will do that. And that's one thing that none of us wanted to see. Um, in terms of the board, um, you know, our, our teammates, our vision, our customers. Um, and so, you know, what, what option could we find where it would be a great outcome for everybody, you know? Um, and when these private equity firms came out and they shared with us their conviction in our business, um, in the customer base that we had established, um, the, the stickiness of the platform, the the broad ecosystem of partners, um, they were truly excited about, you know, kind of going the other way from public investors, seeing that there was such opportunity to continue driving towards that North Star and willing to make the investment and pay current shareholders a, a significant premium. I think it was probably close to 50% of what where the stock was at, at, at that time. Um, and ultimately allow us to continue to just run the company and do what we've been doing and delivering on the, the vision for our customers and, you know, uh, allowing our employees to still be part of a, a great organization and um, continuing on the, 
the dream of uh, you know providing technology that powers that American dream. And so I went through a dance uh, a dance card of a variety of equity firms that came and talked to us. Um, and you know by the time we hit um, early February, we had uh, we had chosen um, you know partnering with Tilma Bravo. Um, and so it's been a uh, it's been an exciting year. Um, you know they've been great partners. Um, they shared our vision. They've shared our vision both in terms of growing the company as it stands, but also um, supporting us in terms of acquisitions that fit into um, the overall strategy. And we kind of knew that coming in. You know, they had shared with with me and the board and some of the rest of the executive leadership team that you know what they liked about the profile of a you know a, a strong you know leader vertical player in a market is that they, they saw it as a, a strong platform for them to support and allow us to bring on additional solutions that would add value to our customer base. So, so you talk about being a, a vertical leader and for our listeners who don't know the whole Ellie story and, and you could probably tell it uh, with a lot more granularity than I can, but so, but Ellie was founded in, in 1997. Is that correct? That, that's correct, yeah. <laughs> okay, so 1997, uh, charged hard as a private company until 2011 when, uh, when LE IPO'd. And uh, from the outsider perspective, watching the stratospheric growth from, from $6 a share to close to $100 a share at the time of acquisition was, was nothing but impressive. But uh, what, what it sounds like is that there was still a lot of value on the table that your, the, the, the suitors, the private equity firms, saw in the, this vertical leader. Yeah, I, I think without a question, you know, these guys, you know, did the purchase price for the company was um, about three point seven billion, I believe, and about two point three billion of that was in equity, the rest in um, some some uh, some debt. Mm -hmm. And you know, when they come in and they do a deal for their limited partners, you know, they're looking over a horizon of you know four to five years, you know whether they continue to hold it and put it in another fund or take it public again, whatever they might do, they're looking to um, at least double that equity, um, if not, you know, triple it. So when you look at that, um, they had to have a real thesis that you can do that through a combination of um, growth and leverage. So what, what they talk about is profitable growth which um, for us was not a, uh, you know, a, a, a foreign concept, unlike a lot of other tech companies that don't make any money, we'd always made money, um, you know, uh, and, but at the same time, being a public company, you better keep driving a significant amount of growth for the public market. The nice thing here is they saw a balance for us where we could keep growing, maybe not as fast as, you know, the public markets might, might want in the short term, but also continue to grow, um, you know, the, the, profit, the profit margin of the company. And with those two vectors, they clearly saw an opportunity to, you know, get to the outcome that they would need to do for their um, shareholders with their limited partners. So we talk about that thesis. So you, you, you touched on profit margin. You touched on a kind of potential acquisition strategy, which we'll get, we'll come back to. Um, the other is coming back to that 
that theory of vertical leadership. And uh, all, all from our vantage point at HousingWire, we see that LE has a, has a very meaningful percent of total origination volume running, running through your platform. Is, is there an opportunity for continued uh, market share growth or, or is it building deeper relationships with existing clients? Like what's, what's the view on, on growth within the uh, kind of the existing vertical and existing client base? Yes, all of the above. All, all um, okay. So, 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 where, yeah, so, so, where we, you, so, where are you at right now, now in terms of market, market uh, share? Yeah, yeah, so, right now, from a, a market stamp, share standpoint, if we just think about it from, you know, it's called retail origination. And, you know, we'll separate that out from correspondence. So, let's call it either wholesale or retail origination. The origination side of the business, you know, we'll probably end up the year somewhere um, in the low 40s. 40, 43% or something like that. Um, and, you know, that obviously is a very significant share, you know, uh, much larger than, you know, number two, but still not, not the majority of the market, uh, you know, a very significant position. Um, so we still see opportunity to, to continue to add customers and grow um, market share. Um, there's, you know, that, that will, that continues, it's been continuing. Um, but obviously we have a, 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 a huge customer base, lots of relationships, you know, thousands of lenders on the platform. Um, pretty much every, um, service provider, software provider, um, in the ecosystem, um, you know, all the way from credit to mortgage insurance to Fannie and Freddie and flood and appraisal and, all these new types of, you know, income verification opportunities. Um, and with that, you know, we can continue to innovate um, and bring more uh, functionality to bear that kind of goes along three vectors. One is helping our existing customers um, drive more business, help them do uh, that faster and at a lower cost. And, you know, given, as, as everybody knows, the, the, the amount um, of money it's, it still takes for a lender to close a loan and that gross production expense, which is somewhere close to $8,000, people go all over the place with it. Um, you know, if, if you can go in and help people take out a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars $3,000, which, you know, we, we've done that in, in, in many cases. Um, you can keep driving more and more value to that existing customer base and everybody wins. Um, the other thing that's become quite, um, quite an opportunity for us um, is not only on the origination side, but on the correspondence side of the business. So, you know, we have more and more um, uh, correspondent investors that have decided to choose our platform as the, the, their acquisition platform. Uh, Amero Home, you know, was probably one of the first to make that move a few years ago. You saw the announcement about PennyMac, who is obviously the largest in the country, and you know they're they're moving towards deploying on our our platform as we go into into next year. Um, folks are using Encompass not only to originate but to acquire, and then the nice benefit of you know being a uh, a vertical market leader is that although we have a certain percentage in the retail side, when you go to lenders that actually sell loans to other parties, correspondent lenders, our share is more than that. 
it's, uh, it's, it's definitely over the 50% mark. And so what has actually happened in that scenario is that every investor out there, whether it be Chase or Wells or um, Home or you name it, you name the player out there, is now signing up for you know, the, the ability for our lenders to deliver um, loans and data to them seamlessly, which obviously helps both sides of the, uh, of the supply chain. And so that, without growing share, we can further create value in the ecosystem, which will help, you know, uh, uh, our customers be successful and help LMA be successful. So with that marketplace model where you have the investors sitting on one side of the equation, that sounds like it would make uh, Encompass and the LMA origination platform significantly more attractive for the, the retail and wholesale lenders who, who are seeking um, the sale of a loan at some point in the life cycle. Yeah, I, we do think there is a bit of a, a number of different halo effects. Um, one, the ability to deliver to investors and all the integrations that we have built in kind of um, right when people start. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the LMA Encompass and the LMA network and the platform, you know, is like this turnkey access to everybody they want to do business with, um, you know, from day one. And that is a big advantage to, you know, retail uh, uh, originators. The other thing is that even as some of these larger retail originators want to grow, um, the most attractive targets for acquisition in M&A tend to be companies on Encompass as well. Because, you know, those are the companies that, you know, have embraced the technology, they run well, you can pick people up and consolidate them onto another platform. So that becomes another kind of byproduct of us picking up share without us actually going out and selling Encompass to a brand new customer. So when uh, the great consolidation wave picks up and all of these confidential information memorandums start circulating the street in 2020, Encompass client is going to be a selling point and, uh, for some of these originators? Uh, it, it has actually happened, um, you know, without revealing stuff, it's, it's happened many times already over the last few years where some of the big deals that you've seen get done, um, the buyer was on Encompass and the target was on Encompass. And one of the criterion for the buyer was, you know, uh, I want to do acquisitions, but I also want to find guys that um, are already on the Encompass platform because the thing that, that people realize is that when you buy a, a, uh, an entity um, franchise, you know, you want to make it as smooth as possible in terms of bringing their loan producers on board. You don't want to disrupt them in any way. So when you think about it, if all those folks are familiar already with a particular system, you, you reduce that you know, level of disturbance and then you gain efficiencies in your back office by consolidating onto one Encompass back office. And with a majority of LMA revenue driven off origination volume, there's not a, is there a material business impact for it to consolidation for, for your business? Um, not really, no. I mean, basically, if you kind of think about it, our model, which we've innovated on for, you know, since going back to probably 2009, um, success-based pricing, was really a model that said, 
you know, we want to align our interests with the interests of our customers. And so, you know, we're going to charge a, a subscription, right, a foundational subscription, but really we expect our customers, the lenders on our platform, to be over that subscription in terms of the loan volume they're doing. And so it's kind of as they're successful, we're successful. And so even as you consolidate, right, you know, in the, in the universe, there is a certain amount of loans. And, you know, obviously we have that, the, the economic variable of volume going up and down. But, you know, if two customers come together and they're both on Encompass, right, um, we're actually no worse off, even though the, the back office goes down, we're likely, you know, going to actually end up doing better because what we find is most times when two companies are coming together, it's a, um, it's a growth play. Right. And so they actually end up driving, they pick up that origination, but they end up picking up origination from other folks. So we actually end up benefiting. So our customers are benefiting, right? They're getting to do it in a more efficient way with a lower cost back office and, uh, and we're benefiting. And the beauty is because of the way we set up the model. If we had set that model up as, oh, you're going to pay um, just seat prices and a big seat ticket and pe people consolidate. Um, we'd actually be worse off. Um, but because we aligned ourselves with our customers, you know, you know we, we, do, uh, we do well as well. Excellent the way that worked out. So playing on that theme of uh, acquisitions being a, a growth strategy and, and knowing that uh, with private equity ownership, you're, you're working on a longer timeline, you're, you're looking at the next four or five years and add-on acquisitions and tuck-ins are often a, a tool in the private equity playbook. And uh, even though we know acquisitions are not new for Ellie in any way, you've done your fair share of deals as a, as a public company, um, but what's your what's the strategy for add-ons uh, under Tomo Brava ownership? And, uh, and we're starting to see that play out with Capsalon. So I'll let you update us there on, on what that strategy looks like. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Tomo Bravo, um, a company that very much embraces a strategy that includes growth both organically and um, and through acquisition. It's always typically part of their thesis. They kind of underwrite and think about what you can do with the, the business on a baseline. And then typically they're modeling out a number of acquisitions. They don't know which ones they are, but they know that um, based on their experience, um, you know, with a, with a big footprint, a distribution channel, you can pick up solutions that fit nicely in there add value, and you can create some real cost synergies when you go down that, that path. And in many ways, sometimes it's more attractive, even more so in the private equity model um, in terms of acquisitions versus building things out organically because you can get to market faster. Um, you, can, you can definitely um, buy some of these acquisitions with uh, debt capital, which uh, you know, adds more to the ultimate return on investment for the, the private equity and their limited partners. Um, um, so it's, it's, it's attractive in that way. So we've, we've expected that we'd be continue doing what we've been doing in the past. Um, I think it puts us in a place to continue to grow the size of the acquisitions that we've done. So if we kind of look back, you know, we, we, we did many acquisitions that were in the, you know, 25, 40, $50 million range. Uh, Velocify became, you know, our first deal that was over 100. K 
Capsalon, you know, was a was a deal that um, you know was a a, a multiple of that. Um, and and so you know, one thing I'd say that's kind of different, um, you know, we think about it, we thought about it as a public company, but I think you know, as a um, as a public company, technology company, a lot of technology companies are just buying um, to drive growth. Mm-hmm. And you know that 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 mindset is you know you're not, they're not worrying about the, the the bottom line. We've obviously seen some of the pushback on the public markets and some IPOs in the, in in the last year or so, but you know people will go off and just buy revenue to add to value. Um, on, with the private equity hat on, I definitely think we look at things strategically, but we want to look at businesses that have actually been well run that actually have thought about, you know, how do we run a profitable business standalone? And then we can even further create leverage there by bringing it into the Ellie Mae umbrella because we've got, you know, this incredible distribution channel and we can create a lot of synergies of going in and introducing a incredible solution like Capsulon um, and its instant underwriting product into, you know, uh, you know, thousand plus lenders um, on the LMA platform. So can you go a little deeper on Capsulon and tell us about the solution and, and in terms of the overall LMA product roadmap and, and playbook, what role does Capsulon uh, play in that and, and where does it fit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the nice thing is, as uh, we, we've known of Capsulon for a number of years um, and in our overall, you know, roadmap, um, and trajectory of, you know, wanting to automate everything automatable, um, you know, we clearly had a view that, you know, we would either have to invest directly and develop our own solutions, partner, or potentially acquire um, capabilities in terms of um, document recognition, uh, uh, data extraction, um, and applying um, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to that in the realm of what we envision doing in our current platform, which is, you know, we've talked about the idea of intelligent workflow automation, you know, using all this data as it comes in during the, um, the mortgage origination process for our lenders and using that data to, you know, help make decisions in a touch-free way in many parts of the process such that lenders can, you know, run the origination process faster and at lower cost. So it's always been part of our our vision and the extension of the platform. And, you know, we started introducing more and more of the LMA digital lending platform over the last couple of few years. The the thing that we saw with Capsulon was our ability to accelerate some of that capability around document recognition, extraction, um, and artificial intelligence. And not from a, uh, uh, a technology company that was touting something that could work, uh, but rather from a company that had gone off and done it very successfully with some of the biggest originators, correspondents, and servicers in the country. Um, so they, they had really... Um, you know, established themselves over the last dozen or so years. And I think as the market kind of was more and more willing to embrace doing things 
with data and with uh, artificial intelligence, these guys were, were already there um, in many ways. A lot of investment still to be, to be continued, but really at a, a great, um, great point, we had actually established a partnership with them about a year ago. And, um, you know, as we were going through our process and, um, you know, they, they were also owned by uh, a private equity firm as well, Francisco Partners, who had really helped them become a, a nice, um, you know, growing and profitable company. Uh, Francisco was ready to uh, make a change in their portfolio. And it just, it was the right, the right combination. So, um, you know, we're really excited. And as, as I said, I'm heading off to go meet a tremendous number of our teammates over the next uh, couple weeks. Um, you know, we have a capsule on about 470 employees. Um, you know, almost all of them are staying with, uh, with uh, Ellie May as part of the, the overall Ellie May footprint and our all new teammates. But a big chunk of them, probably about 400 of them, are over um, offshore in India and Poland and Belarus. So I'm going over there to to get to know them and um, uh, talk about our plans together and our plans to grow. In terms of integration, do those 400 uh, technology-focused team members stay focused on the, the Capsulon underwriting AI platform, or, or do you see them kind of integrating into the, the core LMA and, and supplementing or, uh, or further developing the team you have today in terms of your development and technology talent? Well, we're, we're actually um, going to be doing a n- number of things. One, we're investing there. To, to continue to invest on the underlying um, document recognition and extraction platform, the kind of the core capsule on platform and, and capabilities on top of that. Um, and, you know, the, the beauty of it is that platform has already been integrated into Encompass. So, you know, we're already in a place where there's many Encompass customers taking advantage of the integration with um, the capsule on platform. But you know the Capsulon platform is a it's a great platform that y- you can use and, ha- and many pay- folks use it independent of Encompass and we want to keep you know supporting that um, you know we we have this vision to automate everything automatable and um, that doesn't mean just you know Encompass that means you know other folks on other origination platforms or correspondent platforms um, or um, servicing platforms. So we're going to continue investing there. Um, we're also increasing our investment in Encompass and the LMA digital lending platform. Um, and uh, I would expect us to see growing our, our footprint of talent, um, you know, uh, offshore as well. You know, we've been on that, that journey to continue to grow the organization and leverage both um, on t- uh, 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 onshore and offshore talent. We'll continue doing that. I think the nice thing will be um, is that we'll give the opportunity to people on both sides of that that work on different products to have opportunities to grow their careers and cross over into different products, um, which we think is exciting. And I think a lot of the the employees that um, you know are in both organizations are excited about. So uh, the fact is, you know. There will be some people that work on a variety of things, but some people that work on LMA Prime right now will probably end up working on some of the 
the Capsulon technologies and vice versa, and it'll be one um, unified team. But clearly, we will keep it as a solution that is, um, uh, you know, um, independent of what LOS or what servicing platform you use. And so in that quest to automate everything automatable, are there certain uh, capabilities or components of the platform that you feel that Ellie is kind of uniquely positioned to develop organically and other parts of the strategy that you, you kind of have your, your eyes up and as potential add-on acquisitions, or is that uh, still kind of TBD and how those two, uh, those two strategies merge together? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's usually a combination of, you know, how we look. In this path, we were going down a path developing some capabilities. So we already had some familiarity. We were looking at, say, underlying technologies you could buy, you know, uh, source license agreements and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we got to it, this happened to be an opportunity that came to the table. If it wasn't there, we would have gone at it another way. Um, I think that that has that really been the the way we kind of look at the world um, and it has been the way we've looked at the world consistently for the last, you know, six to 10 years, um, probably since we went public, which is, you know, what problem is the, the, the most important problem to solve for our customers on that journey um, to automate everything automatable. And, you know, as we look at it, what's the best way for us to achieve it, both in terms of talent and resources, time to market and, and maybe even ROI. And, and that could end up being organic. It could be partner, it could be acquisition. And, you know, I, I think it becomes, it's fluid depending on, you know, what, what is available in the market. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're always looking at, um, you know, targets that are out there that, that might be attractive fits for the company, both in terms of technology and culture and, accelerating the vision. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't have, um, you know, uh, just uh, one egg in the basket. You always got to kind of think about different ways you might be able to achieve it. Um, but, you know, we clearly see, you know, we saw opportunity here. Um, I think, you know, we see opportunity around analytics. We see opportunity around the e-closing process. And again, whether we do that, we do it through partnerships, we do it through acquisition. Those are all always things we're looking for the right opportunities. Excellent. So earlier you mentioned that part of the Ellie model is aligning your success with the success of your clients. So I am confident that as you go into 2020 planning cycles, you and your 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 new investor, your new sponsor, Toma Bravo, are are thinking a lot about what 2020 brings for the housing market and what 2020 brings for origination volumes. And uh, I also know that Ellie does a lot of research and work here, uh, seeing 40% of origination volume, your origination insights report is, uh, is a very unique view into a really large chunk of, of the mortgage market. So can you give our listeners your view on what we're expecting in 2020. What are you talking to your team about? What are you talking to your board about? What, what are the numbers that, that have you excited or are keeping you up at night? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, you know, things aren't changing, I don't think, dramatically from what we've been talking about seeing over the last few years. I think, you know, as you pointed out in the Origination Insight Report, and it's a, it's a close sibling, um, it's just to the millennial tracker, um, which we've, uh, you know, we've been, you know, uh, 
had in place for a number of years now, you know, we really do have this continued insight, which I think most people talk about, which is, you know, the first time home buyer, um, you know, the, the millennials making that shift to get into homes, um, it being different depending on um, the market you're in across the United States. Um, but it's it, it, it happening and happening in the, you know, folks on average in, you know, the late 20s, early 30s, as life events have kicked in uh, for those folks. You know, obviously some of that has to do with, you know, how quickly it's happening in certain markets based on affordability and inventory. But without a question, it's happening. Um, you know, we continue to see, you know, that growing as a driver of, um the housing market, the purchase side of the market. Um, you know, the thing that continues to probably hold it back a little bit is inventory at the entry level, but you continue to hear um, uh, folks talking about incrementally building more, and you know, we, we think that will play itself out. So as as we look into you know next year, you know, barring um, a a significant recession, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I don't. I don't think people feel like we're going to have if when we have a recession, a a a one like we had in 2008. Um, but at some point, you know, things are going to slow. You know how how much you know variety of things affect that, whether it be trade or you know global interest rates being negative or the election or a variety of things. There, um, let's assume that things kind of just go you know stand not significant growth. Um, the purchase market, you know, is going to continue to grow at a, a modest but steady pace. Um, that's what all the, the really smart economists at Fannie and Freddie and MBA say. And, you know, they're, 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 they're smarter economists than I. I just play one on TV. Um, <laughs> but uh, but, um, but what is, is interesting is that it, it, even as prices increase, if they do increase, and um, inventory is tight, the demand side is far outstripping the supply. So, you know, even as things tighten a bit, that will continue to be there. And, you know, most folks are predicting that well into, into the future. Um, but still, an inventory problem that get, doesn't get solved overnight. So, you know, whole purchase cannot just take off like refi does. It just, you can't have that dynamic. The refi side of the curve, you know, obviously this year surprised all of us. Um, I think as we go into next year, I think most projections are the first half still stays robust by anybody's estimates because um, the industry hasn't been able to keep up with all the demand uh, for refinancing um, and rates are still expected to be fairly low. Then there's a disparity. Some folks think we're going to see uh, refi at the same pace that we saw it this year, and others think it'll soften a bit. Um, and that's really the, the story of the second half of the year. Um, you know, the way we plan things, um, and I think it's probably prudent for anybody planning in this market, is uh, plan towards the, uh, the conservative side, right? Um, expect that, you know, things maybe are the view of more of the conservatives in terms of we refis are, and if things turn up from there, that's, that's positive. Um, the one thing I would say is true across the board is that, um, you know, people expect 
and know they have to continue to invest um, in the consumer experience um, to you know serve their their customers well on the front line. Um, but I do think what uh, many lenders are realizing with all this you know investment in consumer point of sales and, and fintech on the front end of the process, um, you know, it, it definitely makes it uh, a little easier for the consumer in terms of the mobile process um, or on the, the web or on tablets. Um, it definitely makes the process maybe a little sexier, if you will, um, but it only touches a very small amount of the process. You know, what, what, what I'll call the interest to application. And by far, the biggest part of the cost and the biggest part of the heavy lifting is that application process all the way through the close. And, you know, folks are realizing that more and more where they, they see what they've invested in on the front end and it's bringing back some returns, but nowhere near what their expectations might have been. And now folks are really looking at, you know, how do I get smarter? How do I use the data? to drive workflow in a much more efficient way, intelligent workflow automation. How do I help my, my underwriters do um, more than a couple uh, loans a day? How do I get that to, to 10, a dozen? That's, that's what's exciting about capabilities between Encompass and what Capsulon brings to the table to really help us um, enable that for lenders. Um, and so that's, that's what we're getting excited about as we go into next year. You know, we, uh, we announced the Capsulon acquisition at uh, MBA Annual. Um, we heard from a number of people that it was probably the most exciting announcement of the conference. Um, but on top of that, you know, we probably saw on the order of 100 requests come in uh, in the first day to learn more about how the two solutions are going to work together. So. You know, what that says to me is that there is a real pent up demand in, um, you know, the, the lender uh, ecosystem to really figure out how do you do things faster and at lower cost. One of the things we heard at MBA Annual and, and a lot of different conversations with lenders is that they had <clears throat> full intention of investing in their, their digital mortgage platform in 2019 and that there'd be this massive focus on user experience and bringing in the right tools and then the refi market happened and uh, everybody kind of lost focus, integrations got slowed down, things got pushed out to, to 2020. Um, if rates stay where they are and we continue to see this potentially bullish first half story, do you think that lenders are gonna be able to focus on the strategy, think about those things that they need to focus on to have long-term, sustainable, profitable lending operations? Or do you think that we kind of run the risk of another, I don't know, six, eight, 10 months of, of distraction ahead of us with uh, kind of pounding, pounding our chest and, um, and uh, winner-take-all mentality without really focusing on that, that long-term horizon? Yeah, I, I think it, it it's, it's tough to say, you know, uh, stereotypical lender. I think there'll be lenders that may have that mentality. Um, I think a lot more lenders, um, you know, had every intention. Some continued their investment um, in 2019. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, to be fair with a lot of them, you know, they had really staffed themselves 
um, expecting the market to be at a certain level. Um, and intelligently, I, I think, you know, running the business in a smart way, you know, figured out how to, you know, get as efficient as they could. And that may, may have meant shifting some resources to serve the market when it, it kind of jumped like it did. Um, you know, unless it really jumps again, I think folks are looking and they, you know, most lenders are looking that, you know, the refi market, you know, again, it surprised us in 19. Um, it, it should be um, long-term no more than 25 to 30% of their footprint. And so, you know, they've got to figure out how to be an efficient lender um, in a purchase market with real estate agent relationships, consumers going on through a, a, a buying process and doing that in an efficient way. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what we hear from a lot of folks. So, you know, I, I think it's always a, a balancing act, um, you know, but I also think it's, it's, it's the guys that have actually probably survived through cycles over the years that are actually in the strongest positions right now. And when I look at their footprint, um, and there's many of them in our, in our customer base, um, you know, they probably were closer to 80, 90% purchase um, in 19. They picked up a little bit of refi, but they, they think of the world, you know, kind of the way, you know, uh, you know true folks in mortgage finance think about the world, which is, I'm in the business to help people get new loans to buy their first time home or their move up home. Refi is just kind of a, an extra benefit to that. Um, and if you, if you think that way and you invest that way, um, you're going to be a survivor. Jonathan, thank you for your time today. Best of luck on your world tour, meeting all of your new team members. Don't forget your passport uh, and read some housing wire while you're on the plane. All right. Well, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, you have a wonderful holiday, Clayton. And it was, uh, it was a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week for the eighth episode of the Housing News Podcast.